All right. What's up, everybody? Yes, hi. My name is Mikey Stewart, for those of you who don't know me. And uh, just right off the bat, I'm just going to say this. This is my first ever SALT sermon. So, yeah. I am a little bit anxious about it. I can't lie, a little bit anxious. But I can say this confidently. I'm not as anxious as my brother Griffin in Mexican restaurants. All right? So stick with me for one sec. My brother Griffin has this weird thing that uh, for a long time now, ever since he was a young boy, anytime we would eat as a family in a Mexican restaurant, he would throw up. Like, and not because like, he's allergic to any of the food or like he's getting food poisoning or anything, but because he actually has like this weird anxiety, like mental block to where whenever he's in a Mexican restaurant, I don't know what it is, he throws up. So me and my family would be sitting at the table, we'd be, you know, smashing our chips and salsa. Griffin gets up, goes to the bathroom, he comes back, and we're like, well? And he's like, yeah, I threw up. We're like, oh, Griff! Every time, right? But this was a long time ago. This was like when I was in high school, and I don't have that many opportunities to eat Mexican food with my family anymore. But last weekend, I got the privilege to do so. And, uh, you know, Griffin's grown up a little bit now. He's 16, and so we were like reminiscing on the hilarious times of when he would throw up in Mexican restaurants. You know, we're like talking about it. Um, and so far, so good, until, you know, like 30 minutes later, we're leaving. Griffin's like, hey, I'm going to go to the bathroom. We're like, oh, no. So he, like, walks towards the bathroom, but he doesn't actually go in the bathroom. He ends up walking outside in the parking lot, and we're getting in the car, and he literally says a sentence. He says, hey, Mike, uh, I think I'm going to puke, and just starts puking all over the parking lot, right? And then my mom's cracking up. My sister's, like, plugging her ears. My dad's not too happy because, like, the $10 meal is, like, now on the, the parking lot. And Griffin just leans over, and he's like, like laughing, looking at me. And I'm like, Griff, what's your deal? And he's like, I think I drank too much water. I'm like, no, you don't puke because you drank too much water. You're puking because you're thing, man. He's like, throws up again. And then he does it a third time. And then we get in the car, and like we start moving along, and Griff's like, oh, yeah, sorry, guys. Sorry if I throw up in the car. And my dad's like, no, like, do you need me to pull over? And he's like, yeah, so we kind of stop the car, and right when we open the door, he starts puking again. Three more times he pukes. Like, he had everything inside of him was now on the ground. And, yeah, that's my story. I don't know why I said that, but uh, I'm a little anxious tonight, but not as anxious as my brother Griffin in Mexican restaurants, all right? Tonight, what we're going to be talking about is a story of a man named Saul in Acts chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles, take them out. If not... Get on your phones. Acts chapter 9. And we're going to be looking at three main points from Saul's conversion. Okay, that's where we're going tonight. Three main points from Saul's conversion. So if you're a note taker, three points from Saul's conversion. Point number one is the encounter. Okay, point number one is the encounter. Look in chapter 9, verse 1. It says this. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So stop right there. If you remember back in Acts chapter 7, we heard of a man named Stephen who's being stoned to death. He's the first Christian martyr. And as they're throwing stones at him, as they're killing him, these people are laying their robes at the feet of a very prominent Jewish leader named what? Saul, yes. And Saul is there to approve of the killing. 
And then we see in Acts chapter 8, verse 3, it says, Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. So this word ravaging, it means to wreak havoc or to destroy something. So he's going into these houses and he is ravaging the church. He's not just like suppressing the rise of the early church. He's actively giving everything he has to destroy it. And he's not like a peaceful protester, right? We would consider ravaging like if somebody stood outside of these doors and had a sign that was like, salt sucked. We'd be like, no, right? Like we think like we're being ravaged. Not so in this time. Saul is ravaging his church by going into their houses and finding the father of the house, grabbing him and throwing him into prison. Or he's going into a house, finding the mother of the house and grabbing her and putting her in prison. He's ripping families apart and he's actually shedding blood. Remember, Stephen died. Saul was one who approved of this. So we can't think of ravaging and, and the role that Saul played in that with our American lens on, right? These aren't harmful words. This man is actually destroying the church. And the, Saul, the story of Saul kind of takes a break after this, these two uh, verses. And then we hear of the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, what we learned last week. And if you're just reading straight through the book, you're kind of like, wait, what happened to Saul? Like, you know, it's kind of set up to be this big bad man. What actually happened to him? Well, his story resumes right here in Acts chapter 9. Um, and as it says, meanwhile, right? So at the same time, Saul was breathing out threats and murder against these disciples. And Saul hates Christians. Like, he actively hates them. He's like, in his breath is like murder and hate. And so what does he do with this hate? He goes to the high priests and he asks for permission to go to the synagogues where they would have been meeting, where they would have been worshiping, and ask for permission to bring them to prison in Jerusalem. And you know what this is kind of like? Going to the orthodontist. Okay? Hear me out. Imagine this. You're in middle school, and it's the day you finally get your braces off. <laughs> okay? And your mom was like a cool enough mom to schedule the appointment at like 11 o'clock. So that means you have to get out of class at like 10.30. You have your appointment at 11, like, you know, hour-long appointment. After that, your teeth are all slippery and clean. You got to go to McDonald's and try out them new pearly whites. Right? So you go to McDonald's at like noon, and then you, you stay there for like an hour. You're like pushing it. And then you're like, Mom, it's like too late for me to go back to school. And then this is where you really find out if you have a cool mom. She's like, yeah, you're right. Let's just go home. Right? So then you get the permission to go home. And if you're in middle school and that's your situation, that's your day, you go into school. You're jacked up, man. Right? Like you're ready. Nothing can stop you. If your friends are being mean to you, it doesn't matter. I'm going to the orthodontist. You get that permission slip from your teacher, and it, like, gives you that little strut in your step. You know what I mean? Like, you got the pass. You're getting out of class. It doesn't matter what happens in those, like, two hours of class because you're getting out of there. You got a little strut in your step. Similarly, Saul goes to the high priest, and he pitches his idea. He's like, hey, man, I hate Christians, and I want to kill them, and you do too. So can you give me permission to go to Damascus and do that there? And the high priest is like, yes, here's your permission slip. So Saul gets his letters. He's got his permission to go uh, persecute these Christians. He's got some strut in his step, right? He is determined. He's jacked up. Nothing can bring him down. He's going to Damascus. 
Back to the text, verse 3. As he traveled, it was nearing Damascus, so he's almost to his destination. A light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? He said. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting, he replied. But get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound, but seeing no one. Then Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. He was unable to see for three days and did not eat or drink. So Saul is on the way to Damascus. He's almost to his battleground. He's almost to his end destination. And he's going to do some bad things. He's got some evil planned in his heart. And suddenly, this light flashes. Brighter than the sun. Brighter than anything you could imagine. And it flashes all around him. And it blinds him immediately. Like 100% of his vision goes away in an instant. And so what's he do? He falls to the ground. He's laying on the ground. He can't see a thing. He's feeling around. He's terrified. He probably screamed because it probably doesn't feel good to have all of your vision sucked out of your eyes in a second. When he hears his name, Saul, but he can't see anything. Nobody, he doesn't think anybody knew was around him. He has no idea who this voice is. He doesn't know who's talking to him. And he says, who are you, Lord? Right, like he is stunned. Who are you, Lord? And the reply says, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting, but get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. Can you imagine this situation? What in the world is Saul thinking? Right, after this, he hears these instructions. He's like, he's like probably laying down on the ground. He can't see a thing. He can hear his friends murmuring. They're like, what's going on? Because they, they heard the sound, but they didn't see him. They're not blind. They didn't see anybody, but they heard the sound, and they are shocked too. And he's sitting there thinking. So he like calls for his friends for help, and they help him up, and he doesn't know where he is. And big bad Saul, right? Saul the persecutor is being led by the hand like a little child into his destination of Damascus. And he's got to be freaking out in his mind. I, I can't imagine he's thinking anything other than, I'm going to die. Right? I am surely going to die. I'm being led to my slaughter. Jesus himself said I was persecuting him. And he just blinded me in a second. And now I'm being led into the place where I was going to go kill these Christians. Surely I'm going to die. And I deserve it. And Saul is a man, he's a religious man, familiar with fasting, so he does what he thinks he should do. He's, he's pretty messed up by what's going on, so he doesn't eat anything, he doesn't drink anything for three days. And he heads into the city he's about to persecute. And I don't think Saul's persecution, I don't think the motivation behind it was that he really, really liked putting people in jail. I don't, I mean, maybe it was, but I don't think that's it. I think what it is at its core is a rejection of the lordship of Jesus over his life. Plain and simple. He does not want to follow God. He does not want to put his faith in Jesus Christ. So what's he do? He does the opposite. He persecutes the church. 
And so my question to you is, is there something in your life that you're heading towards that's against the lordship of Jesus in your life? You're probably not in the room persecuting Christians. If you are, please leave. That would be scary. But you're probably not persecuting Christians. But what is that thing in your life that goes against what Jesus is wanting you to do? On your way home tonight, you're about to walk in your door. What would Jesus stop you in your tracks and ask you about? What is that thing he would say to you? Is it, hey, I don't think you should be going on dates with that person you're going on dates with. You shouldn't be spending your money as irresponsibly as you are. Or, you know, that party you're planning on going to tomorrow night, don't go. This is me stopping you in your tracks. What is it in your life that needs to change? Many of you know that I uh, really like CrossFit, but not too many of you know, actually, I don't know if any of you in the room know how I got involved with CrossFit. And this is up there on my most embarrassing stories. So I went to UNI for my first two years of school, and it was the second year of my, or second semester of my sophomore year that I decided I wanted to get into CrossFit. And I heard there was this really popular, really successful gym called CrossFit Kilo, but CrossFit's pretty expensive, especially if you're a student. So I was emailing the coaches, one of the coaches, and like, hey, I am really passionate about fitness and like would love to come to your gym. Could you give me a discount? And this person's like emailing me back. We never come to a conclusion, but a few days later, I get a phone call from an unknown number, and I didn't pick up because who picks up unknown phone calls? Nobody. But this phone, this phone call left me a voicemail, and it sounds something like this. <clears throat> Hey, Mike, this is uh, Rob from CrossFit Kilo. I just want to let you know, uh, we'd love to give you a discounted membership to $50 a month. So if you just want to come in, sign some paperwork, we'll get you going. And I was pumped, man. I'm telling everybody, told my parents, told all my friends. I'm like, I'm going to CrossFit, right? You know how CrossFit people are. They tell everybody, whatever. <laughs> I'm telling everybody. And this is on a Sunday night, I remember. So I went in on, a, on the Monday morning. I was like, oh, I'll just go work out and then sign the papers and stuff get signed up, all that good stuff. So I walk in, and I knew who the owner was. His name was Armin, and so I, I walked right up to him. I was like, Armin, my name is Mike Stewart. Nice to meet you. I got the phone call from Rob uh, last night, and about the $50 membership. I'm really excited to start working out with you, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, you said Rob called you? And I was like, yeah. He's like, we don't have anybody named Rob who works here. And I was like, no, dude, I have the voicemail. Like, do you want to hear it? He's like, no, the only phone number hooked up to this gym is my cell phone, and I didn't call you. And I was like, oh, yeah, weird. <laughs> right, like, you know how dumb I looked in that moment? And I had no idea what was going on. But I signed up anyways. I didn't end up getting a $50 discount. Uh, I signed up anyways, paid more, and just started working out. Well, a few days later, my friends came up to me, and they're like, oh, Mikey, you found out about the phone call? And I was like, what? And they're like, yeah, the phone call. And I was like, what are you talking about? They're like, we prank called you about CrossFit. And I was like, <laughs> no. Like, oh, man, I was so mad at them. They, they got me good. And I never got my discount, but I was very mad at them. But here's the moral of the story, okay? Because of my friends, what I expected, I did not get. And it turned out to be worse for me. And similarly, Ananias is about to meet Saul, and what he expects, he does not get. But by God's grace, it turns out to be far greater. 
Point number two is the conversion. All right, you're taking notes. Point number two, the conversion. Look at verse 10. There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, here I am, Lord, he said. Get up and go to the street called Straight, the Lord said to him, to the house of Judas, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, since he's praying there. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and placing his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard from many people about this man, how much harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem, and he has authority here from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. One thing I want to point out that I noticed when I was first reading this is that Ananias and seemingly all the Christians in the area, they know Saul's name and they know that he's a scary man and they know some of the things he's done. But Jesus actually calls Saul by name twice, right? On the road, he's like, Saul, Saul. And not only does he just know his name and know some of the scary things he's done, but he actually knows every single thing about Saul. And he still cares about him. And he still loves him, and he's not scared of him. For some of you tonight, you may think certain things about yourself that you're not holy enough, you don't come to church enough, you don't read your Bible enough. But I assure you, Jesus Christ knows every single thing about you, more than you know about yourself, and he still loves you. And he still likes you, and he still wants you to be a part of his family. All right, moving on. It says, but the Lord said to him, go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, kings, and the Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So Ananias left and entered the house. Then he placed his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road you were traveling, has sent me so that you can regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And at once, something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. So Jesus calls Ananias and he instructs him to do this big, scary thing. He instructs him to go to Saul. And he says, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. And that'd be like God saying, look for a man from Canada named Justin Bieber. Right, like Ananias knew who Saul was, the man from Tarsus. He didn't have to say a man from Tarsus named Saul. He knew who Saul was. And he says, go meet him because he's praying. And this means that God listens to every single one of your prayers, right? At this time, Saul is messed up. He's praying to God that he would forgive him. He's, he's praying something, and God's listening to him. And, and God's sending Ananias. It's him saying, listen, I listen to all your prayers, and here's me answering them right now. And so he says, you're going to be the answer, so go. And Ananias objects. He's like, hey, listen, man. <laughs> I know this guy, like he's a murderer. He's here to persecute people like me and he's got the letters to do so. Like, wah, I don't wanna, you know? And God shuts him up real quick. Because he says, this man is my chosen instrument to literally take the gospel to everyone. He says, to Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. And if you're not familiar with church language, 
if, if you're not an Israelite, you're a Gentile. So he's saying, Saul is my guide to take this good news to everyone. So Ananias, he leaves his house, and he walks down the street, and he goes to the house Jesus told him to go to, and he's standing in front of it, and he enters the house. What does he see when he enters the house? Right, like he walks in the door, and I imagine Saul's like laying on a bed, and these, his like entourage is around him. So he walks in, and everybody looks at him. And some of the baddest dudes in town are looking at him, and they want to throw him in jail. And he goes up to Saul, right? These guys don't do anything to him because they know something, something's crazy going on. And he goes up to Saul, and he looks at him, and he's laying on the bed, and he looks bad. He hasn't eaten or drank anything in three days. His eyes are all foggy and, like, clouded over. He can't see a thing. And Ananias starts talking to him about, hey, man, that was Jesus who met you on the road. And he starts sharing the gospel with him. These are the reasons this thing happened to you. And he shares the gospel, lays his hands on him, and blesses him in the name of Christ. And then, boom, his, the scales on his eyes immediately start falling off. And, and I, I'm thinking, he's, he's like peeling these scales off, and they're like falling off, and then he's like looking at the scales, and he looks up, and he sees Ananias and all his buddies around him. And I think it's at this moment that Saul realizes, I didn't die. I, I came here, I was led by the hand, I should have died. Jesus should have killed me, I deserved it. He had every right, but he graciously gave me a second chance. And as he sees the scales on the ground that were just on his eyes and his buddies around him, he's realizing that Jesus is full of grace. And he's full of patience. And this whole time, God has been beckoning him into relationship. See, it's really interesting. When Saul, he'll, sorry, he'll later be renamed Paul. Uh, I'm, I'm not quite sure why, but uh, he's known as Paul in the rest of the New Testament. And when he's giving his testimony to some people in Acts chapter 26, he says this thing that Jesus told him in the vision that the author Luke didn't put in. And he says that Jesus said to him, Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. You know what a goad is? It's like this, it's like this stick that had a point on the end that shepherds would use to like prick uh, like a sheep or a cattle that would be used to protect them. Right? It like hurt them a little bit, but it was used to, to keep them in line and to protect them. And I think Saul's realizing these, these pricks, these nudges this whole time has been beckoning me to follow Jesus, to submit myself to God. And God is saying, it's hard for you to resist me, Saul. So stop, just love me instead. And Saul's remembering all these times that he was made to love God and to serve him and not to persecute him. Saul realizes that he may not have died physically, but spiritually, he actually did die to himself and now he was a new man. And it's at this point in Saul's life that he is now a Christian and he has been converted. Right? Conversion. Pretty yucky word. We don't like using that word. I don't think you would ever say, hey man, come to church so you can be converted. Right? That word sucks. But it's so fitting. Right? There's a reason the word's used. There's a reason 
I'm using it now because it is fitting for the story. And it's fitting for your life too. In order to truly know and follow Jesus, you have to be converted. Everything about your life needs to change. The way you view yourself, the way you view others around you, the way you view God, everything needs to be changed. A conversion is what's needed in order to become a Christian. And Saul, Saul from Tarsus gets converted. And so he gets up and he leaves his bed and he leaves the scales behind and he goes and gets baptized because he's telling everybody, I'm a new man, right? I died spiritually and now I am risen with Christ. I'm a new man. Ananias expected to be persecuted by Saul, but instead by God's grace, he got to lead him to Christ. And this leads us into our final point in the story, the irony. So if you're taking notes, point number three, the irony. Point number three is the irony. This is my favorite part of the whole story. So everybody look at me. Saul, when he goes on his journey, his intended destination is the synagogues in Damascus. And he gets there. But by the time he makes it to his destination, instead of persecuting the Christians, he's now preaching the gospel. That is crazy. Verse 19, Saul was with the disciples in Damascus for some days. Immediately he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. He is the son of God. Right? Like this is the only thing they remember. They're like, yeah, Saul said some things. The only thing we remember him saying is he's the son of God. But all who heard him were astounded and said, isn't this the man who in Jerusalem was destroying those who called on his name and then came here for the purpose of taking them as prisoners to the chief priests? But Saul grew more capable and kept confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that this one is the Messiah. Do you remember in verse 16 where Jesus says to Ananias, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name? Like more irony in the story, that Saul the persecutor would actually for the rest of his life be persecuted. He would be beat up so bad that people think he's dead and they leave him to die and he gets up and keeps preaching the gospel. That Saul, the murderer of Christians, would eventually be murdered for his faith. His head would literally get cut off for Jesus Christ. He was a man who would suffer greatly, just like Jesus said. And Saul had it all. He was the perfect Jewish leader, right? In Philippians 3, he talks about how he considers his, his old credentials to be nothing. Look what he says. He says, I consider everything to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I've suffered the loss of all things and considered them filth so that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. This is the same guy who hated Christians to his very core would eventually be saying, nothing in this world is as enjoyable as knowing Christ. This is a crazy story of an incredible conversion that is only possible by grace, right? Something he did not deserve but got anyways. 
he received grace. I mean, was there anything, was there anything worthy in Saul that made Jesus more inclined to save him? No, definitely not. The only way he became a Christian was by grace. He was killing and persecuting God's children. In Ephesians 2, 8, 9, he says, For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. I mean, hypothetically, if you killed Donald Trump's son, he's not going to invite you to the White House and invite you to be a part of his staff. He's just not. He's going to be angry at you. But Jesus can actually look at Saul and say, Saul, I know your name. I know the scary things you've been doing. I know every single thing about you. And I love you still. And I like you still. And I want you to be part of my family. I purchased you with my blood. So come to me. Saul was the last person in the world you would expect to be a Christian. And maybe you feel the same way tonight. Maybe you're like, I'm in this room and I am the last person in the world who would believe this garbage. Right? Maybe you can relate to what Saul is feeling, the things he's doing. Maybe you're not persecuting Christians, but maybe you don't see Jesus Christ as a savior. You don't see him as gracious and beautiful, but maybe you also feel him beckoning you. The invitation is out for you tonight. You, my friend, can be saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, just like Saul was. You are not too far gone. You are not too bad. I don't care how much Bible you've read. I don't care how many times you've been to church. Nobody is too far gone from this grace. I mean, did Saul do anything good in his life that would make Jesus want him more. No. He actually did only evil things, but he was converted. And I'm going to say a yucky word. You can be converted tonight. Right? This radical life change. Saul did it. If Saul did it, it's good news for you. Or if you are not in that camp, you're like, no, man, like I, I believe all this. I, I've given my life to this. Here's my challenge to you. Be a little bit more like Ananias, right? This man was scared out of his mind, but he faithfully obeyed the commands of Jesus. He had to be so bold, so courageous to be like a lamb crawling into the lion's mouth to to go talk to Saul. This, This story doesn't work without Ananias. God needed somebody to go talk to him, and he did it. So you should be more like Ananias. Here's the craziest part of the whole story, and I'm going to finish with this, so stick with me. Saul's conversion to Christianity was actually for you. Later, he would write a letter to his friend Timothy, and in 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16, he says this. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. He, he viewed himself as the worst sinner in the world. He says, but I received mercy for this reason, so that in me, 
the worst sinner, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. He's patient. Jesus Christ is patient. He's waiting. And he's waiting for you. And Saul's saying, my whole life leading up to my conversion to Christianity, it's actually for you to show you that nobody is too far gone from this good love of Jesus. That Jesus loves each and every single one of you in the room tonight. And I hope that through the story of Saul, you can believe that a little bit more tonight. That Jesus actually loves you and you're not too bad, you're not too far gone. That you can be forgiven and free just like Saul was. Praise God for this. This is good news, amen? All right, let's pray. God, I thank you so much for the story of a bad man named Saul who thought he had his life together. He, according to the world, looked perfect. He had all the credentials. He had everything. His life was great. And you flipped it on his head. I mean, you stepped in at the perfect time, and you, you didn't even have to flex a muscle, God. You just, boom, and you saved Saul. And his whole life was changed after that, and his story is for us tonight. God, I pray that if there are people in the room tonight who feel your beckoning, who feel that, yeah, I think this story actually was for me that they would boldly give their life to you, that they would talk to somebody in the room who could help them out because, Lord, you are a patient God. And thank you for being a patient God. Thank you for loving us and sending Jesus Christ to die for our sins that we might actually know you. We love you, Lord. Thank you for this truth. I pray that it gives us great joy and that you help us to worship you accordingly. In the name of Christ we pray, amen.